Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Left Turn Canada. Andy Burkowski and Christo Avalise here to bring you all of the latest and greatest in left-wing news of what's going on here in Canada. In, I think it was a couple episodes ago, Christo, I don't know if you remember, I made a solemn vow to the audience that we were going <laughs> to have this show coming out Pretty much one day, maybe one or two different days a week, but it's going to be stable. It's going to be the thing you look for on your feed each week. And I have <laughs> broken that promise. It's 100% my fault, folks. So don't don't be getting mad at Christo because you want to hear what he has to say about politics. Uh, I, I said this online. I followed my great family Polish tradition of waking up in searing, crying pain last week. Yeah, there was a post on on, on Twitter of Andy at the hospital, I yes. think, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, yeah. I, it wasn't, you know, this great calamity. It was a stone a couple millimeters wide in my kidneys. And uh, yeah, I had kidney stones. So unfortunately, that knocked me out. Shout out to all of the... Uh, left turners, maybe we'll call them that. We'll think of a good name that uh, yeah. commented and said they've had this and it's the worst pain they've ever had. So I appreciate I felt very seen. I like that. But uh, anyways, yeah, that's why we're uh, a, a little bit late. But this week, we got a lot to talk about, Christo. Uh, we're going to talk about how tough it is being rich. Make sure we'll get to that. Very, very yeah. important. Who, who's, yeah, who will think of the uh, the rich people? Who will? Who will? So we'll get into that. We got the Quebec election results. And uh, the big story is this idea, something that we absolutely talked about a lot here on the show if the NDP did prop up this liberal min, uh, minority government, what that would look like. There are some musings that this could be kind of official, unofficial. So I really want to dive into that. But first, another tragedy. We have a, a Canadian hero. I'm going to say Krista. Well, we'll give him that title. Kind of a Black Hawk Down situation that is stuck in a, a different country and he can't get home. Yeah, yeah. we'll talk about this, this, this great patriot. And some people ask why I was able to come to Florida, because as you know, I didn't take the two shots and I won't. But uh, an unvaccinated person can travel to the US until the 8th of November without having the vaccine passport. So that's why we decided to come here before the 8th of November. So that is, of course, the <laughs> gotcha. leader of the the PPC, uh, Maxime Bernier. He's stuck, Christo. Where, where is he stuck? What's going on? Well, I'll just as right after the two Michaels, this is truly the greatest Canadian, um, you know, but but Maxime, I guess he went down to the States for a vacation in Florida and he specifically went down because there was sort of a deadline that uh, you could still get into the U.S. without a vaccine passport up until a certain date. Mm. And so he specifically went. And now there's a question about whether or not he'll be allowed to come back. Or he'll be forced to quarantine. And we know Maxime Bernier um, is uh, not one to respect uh, anything. <laughs> uh, and so there's a sense that it's like, it, what, what kind of like, you know, shit show is it going to be when he comes back uh, to Canada? And this is all happening when, uh, at least hypothetically, there's going to be a PPC leadership review. I don't think he's really in danger because objectively... Um, you know, he was quite successful in the last election. You might say that they failed to win a seat, but the PPC beat the Green Party 
And besides DNDP was the only party to increase uh, the raw amount of votes it won relative mm-hmm. to the last election. Um, and so uh, I don't know what his what his deal is, <laughs> but clearly there's going to be an issue when he comes back to Canada. They can't literally ban him yeah. because like Canadians have a right to come home. It's like after the borders closed, the border wasn't permanently closed to Canadians. Like Trudeau, they couldn't keep you out. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know if they're going to you know, arrest him or something. <laughs> Would that help him, him to though, go to, you know, like if he was arrested yeah. and then refused to Well, he's quarantine. already been arrested, right? Yeah, like, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is part like, I mean, I like, I'm not saying it's going to make him prime minister or anything. And, and we're at least, you know, a year or two away from another election probably. And so like immediate political considerations aren't necessarily at play, but yeah, you're right in the sense that, you know, the, like, Right-wing politics right now is about trumping, like they're trumping up, building up, yeah. drumming up victimhood, right? Mm-hmm. Getting old. Uh, the cancel culture, <laughs> the cancel culture, uh, the 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 special interests, the trans people mm-hmm. are are coming to get you, and they're going to ruin everything. And and COVID really plays into that. You have people like the Prager U people yeah. are basically saying. Like in the States, but all of this is connected. Look at the top Canadian podcasts in politics. They're almost exclusively American right-wing shows. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the whole discourse is, uh, you know, this is the new Holocaust. Uh, This is the new AIDS crisis. Much like, uh, you know, gay men were uh, criminalized and ostracized in the 1980s. That's what unvaccinated people are being treated like today. And so, yeah, if he gets arrested or if there's a big scene at the airport or wherever when he comes back, then, yeah, he's going to definitely milk that for for coverage and donations and all of that. hundred yeah. percent. It is 100%. nice, though, just to just for a second to know that likely this wasn't a stunt to begin with, that likely he's just like a fucking idiot and like yeah. he didn't follow the rules. And now he's complaining about it, even if he uses it to his advantage. It's just nice to think for a moment that this scumbag, you know, was owned a little bit. And instead of what most people do, you know, feeling shame, trying to rectify that, maybe examine their actions he's going part and parcel with the right-wing movement head first into the ownage i know this happened but you're the real bad guy love 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 to see it uh what else we got before we get into the real meat and potatoes here christo i know there's there's thing that the toronto star does that oh, always fuck. is annoying like it's well, always toronto, tedious. Star, toronto life does it as well right yeah, where yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like they'll 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 try to write this personal interest story. And there's nothing wrong with these stories necessarily in and of themselves, where you take like a person, a family, a group, and you use it to tell a bigger story. But the whole point of those stories generally is for you to either relate to someone or empathize with someone, not hate their fucking guts. Right. (laughs) And so this one, it's almost like they wrote this to piss people off. Like we don't even need to read the article, but, um, The headline is Sandro, 34, just bought a house in Toronto, making $150,000 a year. He's worried about his future finances. How can he prepare? And then the the Twitter kind of paragraph here says, thanks to a grandfather's inheritance and living at home until 34, this millennial is now a Toronto homeowner. 
making and then it says making 150 he worries about his finances yeah. and right now this has been ratioed to hell yeah. uh three three uh 141 quote tweets and only three regular tweets and what looks to be at least you know a couple hundred replies here mm-hmm. um you know just just absolutely insane <laughs> the the average canadian millennial uh somebody posted this here i don't know if this is accurate but somebody posted it here it makes like 36,000 a year. I don't know if that's accurate, but I do know Seems like a good medium. That, yeah. Yeah. The the average Canadian family makes significantly less. Yeah. than 150 a year. And I understand Toronto's a bit pricier, but 150 a year is a is is a, a lot of money everywhere. I know mm-hmm. it's less a lot of money in Toronto, say vis-a-vis Kingston where I live, but it's still a lot of money for a single like for one person. Yeah. Um and so it's like Oh, this is a person with like a typical experience. How do we, you know, get this across here? And it's like it really showcases these, right? Like, like one of the top comments here says, "Why do news outlets keep publishing the same quote millennial with inheritance buys house story?" Because then one person here, Dan from Toronto, who's a uh, follower of mine, uh, I don't know if they listen to the show, Dan, if you're listening, thanks. Uh, the, he says because no one else can quote millennial makes 60 K a year must rent forever. Just isn't as fun to write. And then a reply to that says 60 K like, do you know what I mean? Like, I like, yeah, it's like, it's, it's wild, right? That, that this is the story. And you've seen other ones like this as well, where they'll bury, they'll bury the, the inheritance, like the yeah. credit to this one. They come out the top and say, this is already a pretty well-off person. They're Mm -hmm. making, you know, low six figures. They're making, you know, a top 5%, maybe even better income. Um, You know, uh, no kids. I assume there's no kids. You know, she's, you know, bachelor lifestyle. That's a lot of money for a single person to live on. Um, And they, and they, they announced the, the inheritance and the, the living at home for the first 15 years of adulthood, 16 years of adulthood. A lot of times these stories will come out and they'll say like millennial does it. Millennial buys house by age 24. Here's how you do it. Here's how they did it. Right. And it's like those ones especially are like more nefarious. This one is more just like really tone deaf. Yeah. I I have a theory on this, Christo. I did did a little bit of sleuthing when you gave, uh, you threw this out here. I, I do think the initial premise is kind of faulty because it's this idea of like he's making now 150k a year. He's got a home. What's he gonna do? How does he prepare? You don't need to worry about that. Like real millennial money issues are when you need to stretch your dollar. Now you don't have to. And the uh, the writer of this, Evelyn Kwong, that does a a lot of these things for the Toronto Star. She is at least uh, online facing like a pretty woke and, and progressive, uh, you know, young person. So I, I do have a theory that she's kind of taken the piss and this is intended almost for this purpose. Because what are okay. the odds that we at this point? Right. Because they get yeah. more and more egregious without just being like, ha, jokes on you. This will never be you. You know, like I, I really do think. This is a I've seen Toronto Star things, PSYOP, yeah. I've got to say. <laughs> I mean, I've seen one of those arguments with the Toronto Life pieces in general where it's almost like someone was like, they knew it would get hate clicks. Yeah. And like, that's the point, right? And maybe that's true, but I also think like, okay, maybe this is relatable to the Toronto Star's like upper middle class sort point. of yeah. PMC clientele. 
Mm-hmm. And so what's relatable to the people that have subscriptions and, and are perceived as their core audience maybe isn't what's relatable to the average millennial or working or even just standard middle-class Canadian because most people can't afford to live at home until they're 34. Most people don't always have that luxury if their families don't live where their job happens to be, even if they wanted to and even if their parents were happy to and all yeah. of that. Uh, and most people, again... Will never make 150. Will never. Mm-hmm. Again, if you if, if a couple is making 150, they're better off than most. If you stats can it, like family income in Canada, you're upper. You're by every means upper middle class. Yeah. If that's a like, family income, not an individual income in Canada. Yeah, like if you're you look here. Yeah, you, well, exactly right. Like stats can. I think they have it here. Stats can basically says that. Um, the median income in 2019 for a couple family, a family couple is about $99,000 a year. Jeez. For, for, for people 25 to 34. So for two married people in their mid twenties to mid thirties, which this person is the median income for a couple is about 87. So this guy makes almost double what mm-hmm. a couple makes. So he makes about almost four times what the average person is making in that sense. Yeah. And just to say as well, when I lived in Toronto throughout my twenties, I didn't know a single person my age in my cohort that was making anything close to that individual. No. And most people weren't coupled up at that time. You know, you're in your twenties, you're experiencing the world, but just this idea that you are getting guidance in some way from these outlets is, I think the most shocking thing. And I don't think mm-hmm. there's anyone who's our age or a little younger who's looking at this and actually getting a message of, you know, here's how you save money. Here's what I can gleam from this. So I, I, at least I think that it's not achieving pretty much anything except for maybe being pablum for, like you said, the subscribers and maybe a little dig from the author. Who knows? But yeah, I, I, this I, yeah. we are t- far too self-aware now. If you're a millennial and you went through your 20s in a city like Toronto, you know that this isn't the medium and you laugh at it. So I'm glad we uh, we got to have a little laugh at their expense. Well, but good luck, just Sandro. One final, right? one, final, one final thing here. Just to, to set it back, this is from 2018. I was remember it's from the Beaverton, where they had this great piece where it says, "You won't believe how far into this millennial homeowner piece it takes us <laughs> to mention their inheritance." <laughs> so keep an eye out. Make sure you you watch for that. If if there's any article that says you should have this by this age they are trying to fuck with you because we know if you're listening to this podcast, you're abundantly clear that the economic instability that is rocking this generation is bleeding through everything. Capitalism is dying. Sandro doesn't have to worry about it, but most other people do. And in that, uh, that happy notes, let's talk about Quebec. What, what happened there in the last few weeks? Why do I have to care about Quebec again? Well, Quebec went through some municipal elections I don't have too much to say. They they yeah. kind of do the thing Ontario does. A lot of provinces do it where like all of the, the, the cities do their municipal elections for mayor and, you know, town councils, city councils, whatever, uh, on the same day. Uh, some good news. Uh, Guy Caron, many will remember him as the uh, NDP MP. He was elected in 2011 in the Orange Wave, but lost his seat, unfortunately, in 2019. 
Um, did not did not run again, um, and instead chose to run for mayor of Ramouski, which is sort of like a mid-sized city in Quebec, and was successful winning that, which is great to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is uh, fantastic. He's come to a lot of events in Kingston, so I'm very happy for him, you know, uh, and uh, happy to see that. You also saw of uh, Mayor Plant win again in Montreal, uh, sort of seen as an NDP-type politician there. You know, uh, center left to left politician easily winning the mayorality in Montreal again. Uh, some polling was indicating that it was going to be tight, but it didn't end up being. She defeated former mayor Denis Coderre, uh, and uh, you, you know, in in general, the, the, these were some decent results. Uh, so I just wanted to point that out, you know, some municipal politics happening, municipal politics doesn't get a lot of coverage. We're, you know, we don't cover it a lot, but really it is quite important. Paradoxically, it gets often the least coverage, but, um, they have a, they have a big effect on, on your day to day, uh, on your day to day life. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that we, we have to look into, uh, into more, uh, and maybe we'll try to do that, uh, Mm -hmm. especially when it, when it pertains to communities where, we're closer to, but no, um, municipal elections in Quebec, uh, very interesting. Mm, but nothing shocking, you know, some some good victories. No, I for mean, some well, there was one thing wanted. here, and uh, in Quebec City, I believe this happened really wild, the really Dewey defeats Truman thing, but mm. um, it wasn't so much ideological because the, all the contending candidates in Quebec City for mayor were some variety of center right to like centrist. But the 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 election was very close, and at one point, all the local media had declared someone the winner, only to have to retract that declaration oh, as that. another person won. Right? Like, awesome. Yeah, you know that that very rarely happens, right? Mm. Uh, sadly, I remember it happened uh, to us on on election night, where the Globe and Mail at least declared a Ruth Ellen Brasso a winner in her riding in Quebec, uh, in 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 Quebec. Uh, not the other outlets, I don't believe did, and then they quietly retracted that as she ended up losing quite narrowly. Um, I guess they mis they misunderstood where the votes come from. Usually, what they do with these election calls is through a mixture of historic polling data, um, the uh, the the results versus projections, mm-hmm. uh, and where the votes are coming from from like the specific parts of the riding. They get a good sense for the performance, right? And yeah. so. Um, the fact, the reality is that, um, the reality is that they must have mis, they must have uh, miscalculated the mm. relative strength and weaknesses. This is the whole reason why you know they were able to Fox News. Uh, their 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 data side is not is not partisan. They were able to call Arizona early that first night because they had a really good sense of where the votes were coming and Trump was failing to get the votes he needed in certain areas and Biden was exceeding expectations. And so um, there was a big poll. There was a a projection fuck up in Quebec city. That was very interesting. And that sort of blew Hmm. up on Twitter a little bit. Interesting. So absolutely got to look at the municipal politics more and more. It's a thing we care about the least and actively affects your life the most. Like when I was covering Toronto City Council, it was amazing the choices there that directly would lead you to your life being either better or a whole lot worse. So, you know, we will do our best. We'll we'll uh, keep watching that where we can. Speaking of that, though, we're doing the opposite direction now. Let's talk about the federal government. So uh, if you're listening now, chances are you probably already heard this. But uh, it was actually a Globe and Mail scoop that they were first 
pushing that the federal NDP is now holding informal talks with the liberals to prop up the minority government for two to three years in exchange for action on housing, pharmacare, climate change, compensation for indigenous children and other issues. Nothing was confirmed. Uh, Liberal representatives refused to comment on this, but there is some of a historical precedent, Christo, for this obviously happening in history, rather, but even within these parties. Some members of the caucus saying things that kind of sounded like they want to work together. We talked about this on the show a few times. At this point, there's no need for an actual formal uh, propping up or or coalition. That, That wouldn't work for anyone's numbers. What is this what do they mean by like an informal propping up? What is what does that actually mean for layman's that are listening? Well, there's two kind of things you can there there's there's really kind of like three things that you can use. The most informal is sort of what was happening in the last parliament where the liberals had no deal with any of the the opposition parties, not the conservatives, the bloc, the NDP, the greens, whatever. Um, And it was basically governing on an issue by issue basis. The liberals understood that they didn't have a majority, so they couldn't do everything they wanted with full, you know, autonomy. But the other parties, one, all needed to simultaneously unite against them and were not willing to force a pandemic election, right? Mm -hmm. And so they could just kind of like craft a policy knowing that through a mixture of apprehension and just, you know, enough of the other parties liking some of it, they could get it passed. And that's what that last parliament was. Then you have... A, a, a sort of hybrid, which is like a supply and confidence deal. It's where a, a, a governing party will go to one or more of the opposition parties, usually one in Canada, and will say to them, you are, we will make you a deal that you will not support any, you will not oppose any confidence motions against the government. You will vote with the government on confidence motions, AKA if the vote has the chance of taking down the government, you will always vote with us in Mm. exchange for that. We commit to implementing these policies or we commit to not implementing a certain policy or a mixture of the two. And there's no you there's no formal representation for um, the minor party, the party giving the the yeah. votes to uh, within cabinet. They're okay. not a member of the government. They're not getting seats in cabinet. They're not involved in the in the the direct government planning of legislation, perhaps beyond the specific deals that have been made. Um, does That's that have to mo- be public if this happens, or could this all I just mean, happen? I, privately? It could be private, but that would be seen as very shady. I okay, like normally it it's quite public, way. right? Okay. And sometimes maybe the specifics of the deal, like the deal, isn't necessarily word for word published, but they're like the deal is often made public. Okay, um, and this has often happened in Canada federally with the NDP sort of doing this role vis-a-vis the liberals mm-hmm. where they they're getting a series of policies they want to see usually however they are in parliaments that are closer where yeah. the margins between the two parties are rather narrow for example in 1963 the Lester Pearson defeated John Diefenbaker and he won about 33 seats more than Diefenbaker. But when you add the the right-wing social credit party, which if they had to choose would support Diefenbaker over Pearson, the gap was less than 10 seats. And so the liberal thought to themselves, okay, effectively we can, um, 
we can form a, 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 a majority style coalition with the NDP. At the time, you needed 133 seats for a majority. Uh, the liberals had 128. The NDP uh, had 17, comfortably over a majority in that case. And so um, the, that's where the NDP was able to get a lot of concessions in the 1963 parliament. And, and similarly, in the 19... Um, in the 1965 um, parliament as well. And so that's the most common example in Canada. Mm. In modern Canada, and I can't even think of any examples of the third option, which is a formal coalition, which we don't really do in Canada. I mean, even in BC, because in Canada, usually um, it's almost always the largest party in the particular legislature, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's the number one party going to usually the third place party and saying to them, give us the votes to get over the hump and we'll give you these two, three, whatever things. And then in two years, the deal either expires, we'll renew it, whatever. Um, in BC, that was a, in the last, uh, but not this last provincial election because the NDP won a majority, but in 2017, the Liberals won the most seats. The NDP was just a couple behind, but with the Greens supporting them, they were able to form a government. And that was a supply and confidence deal effectively, where the NDP promised certain things to the Green Party, including, for example, a referendum on proportional representation, uh, mm. which, 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 which was delivered and, and all of that. Um, and after a, a while, that, 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 deal, that deal ended. They were almost at the four-year term of government when, when that next election was called. There hasn't been, to my knowledge, a formal coalition government. And usually what that would entail is a, 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 a supply and confidence type deal, but almost always a, a representation within cabinet of the minor party. So they would get, for instance, you know, the NDP in a, say a cabinet of 30 seats or whatever, the NDP would get, say, 10 seats. You know, matching the party size or whatnot, uh, and a mixture of minor and maybe even a couple major roles in cabinet. So, you know, that that's what it would be. And you would likely see, say, Jagmeet Singh join cabinet in some capacity. Those NDPers would be around the cabinet table. And because of that, they would be part of the government, which would make which would limit their ability to criticize the government as well, because cabinet usually has to kind of stick together once cabinet makes a decision. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that that's almost never happened in Canada. The closest we came federally was in the late 2010s. If you recall, yeah. at the time Stephen Harper was prime minister, uh, he had a minority government, but uh, a lot of people were concerned with how, with how he was handling, among other things, the, the response to the, the worldwide economic collapse. And so the liberals under Dion and the NDP under Leighton were going to form a coalition government where the liberals would govern and Dion would be prime minister, but Leighton and other NDPers would be in the cabinet and the bloc would take a supply and confidence deal and not be part of the government. For obvious reasons, the, the, the NDP and the liberals did not want the bloc to be a part of the government, but the bloc didn't want to be a part of the government either. Mm -hmm. Like the bloc, that's not the, the bloc did that's not, not want bag. to yeah. be, yeah, it didn't want to be in cabinet. It's too much of a conflict of interest with being, you know, a party that is at least at times separatist, yeah. uh, but it, it served their interest. Now, of course that fell apart because Harper broke parliament, the liberals backed out, blah, blah, blah. But that's the closest we got. My sense with this 
is that if it happens, it'll be somewhere between step one and step two. It's going to be a little bit more formalized than what we saw under the the, the last, you know, the 2019, the 2021 mm-hmm. parliament. But if they're making some kind of deal to say guarantee we're not going to have an election for three years or for, you know, so many two and a half years, whatever, then the NDP would likely see a formalized list of things to be adopted. Um, I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't yeah. know. Well, we, we talk about this a lot during the uh, the election this year, and one of the most interesting ideas that I we, we talked about was the notion for that little short period of time where it looked like the conservatives might win, that like two weeks or week and a half during the last election where it seemed like it could be a possibility. And yeah. there was that chance of, you know, would Trudeau, that question rather, mm-hmm. would Trudeau form a coalition government with the NDP? And the most interesting answer that we thought of was there's no fucking way he would do that. He would rather yeah. the conservatives win than in that moment form this more official, you know, a partnership yeah. that had the uh, the tendencies and qualities that yeah. you just described. So, and he sort of and he sort of said that in the in the French one of the two French debates where he basically said, if there's another minority parliament, we'll be back in 18 months. And he sort of rejected the idea of any coalition. Um, Yeah. There's a couple things there. Yeah. I don't think Trudeau would do that um, because I think he feels maybe it would be, he, he doesn't think it'll be supported by Canadians. I don't know. But I also think that gives the NDP absolute maximum leverage Yeah, because you went from losing to being prime minister still, and you're totally dependent on the NDP for support. In this case, the liberals might actually be in a more likely position to accept because they have a, they, they are the largest party. So unless something happens, they'll be allowed to govern, yeah. right? Like if they sort of similarly, similarly to what happened after the 2019 election, uh, the liberals didn't win a majority, but they were clearly in first. The conservatives were way back, at least in seats. Uh, no one seemed willing to take them down or to unite to take them down. And so he could kind of just govern. He's in a similar position here. So if he takes a deal from the NDP, and this is something the NDP has to consider, um, he might not have to give a lot up. That's what I'm thinking. Like, what is his downside of doing this? It, it makes him seem like, you know, he is this progressive leader, even though, like we said during the election, yep. a lot of the things yep. that liberal voters actually want are what the NDP is pushing well, exactly. and it's part of their policy and what the liberals yep. are not offering. If he does this, offers basically lip service, he can still provide everything that he was going to do. And the yep. thing that makes me most concerned about this proposition is how uh, tenuous the demands or requests are from the NDP allegedly. It's essentially everything. It's housing, pharmacare, climate change, compensation yeah. for Indigenous children. It's so broad that yeah. I, I'm just wondering the upsides that you see yeah. for both parties here. Because for me, I'm seeing a real slam dunk for the Liberals and not much of an advantage for the NDP, but uh, maybe I'm missing a side of this dice here. What do you think? Yeah, there's there's definitely advantages for the Liberals. Again, they have a strong bargaining position. This is not as we've talked about in say 1972, where uh, Trudeau won a Pierre Trudeau wins a majority in his first government, wins a minority in his second. He only has two more seats than Stanfield, 
um, who, if he was able to unite with the Social Credit Party, would have more than Trudeau. And so he goes to David Lu David Lewis and the NDP, and they're able to um, together add up to uh, uh, effectively a small majority of the seats, uh, and mm -hmm. they form a deal, and a, and a lot gets done. Trudeau need maybe doesn't need, but he'd be in very precarious straits without NDP support there, right? Yeah. He'd be absolutely. In, in, in real trouble, in real, real trouble if he didn't have NDP support there. So in that sense, Trudeau is, um, is, 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 is like sort of trapped there, mm -hmm. right? He needs to do something here. Uh, he, he doesn't need the NDP, right? But what it could give him is more security, more flexibility over the next couple years. As we've noted, uh, liberals, Liberal voters like NDP policies, um, mm -hmm. and it, they like the NDP. Jagmeet Singh is actually quite popular with the most popular leader in Canada, and he's quite popular with liberal partisans. And so this could be good for Trudeau, as you note, because it will bolster his image, uh, fake as it is, of yeah. being progressive because he's willing to work with the NDP. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of create this idea that he's cooperating with the broad non-conservative Everything Electra. that we criticized him about during the election, the, like some of the biggest things about this this PR imagery would be, I think, a salve for any of those liberal voters that maybe were a little bit persuaded. Because I, I really do believe, as, as the numbers perhaps bear it out, maybe it didn't follow, but he was hit on things that I think traditionally liberal voters would be affected by. I think there was an impact by the lack of real commitment to indigenous rights and, and indigenous children in particular of yeah. that action. So I feel like this is something. I mean, there definitely was an effect. I mean, they gained some seats. Obviously, they had a very lucky vote spread. But the, Tr the Trudeau liberals lost support despite the fact that they, uh, you know, are seen as doing a good job during COVID. And most world leaders that had good COVID performance, yeah. you know, were rewarded at the polls. Trudeau was not. You're not necessarily punished, but you're right in a sense that there were a few things holding him back from not getting that majority. And it could have been that some progressive voters just weren't willing to give him that weren't willing to come back. So that's to what pool. I mean. This, right. this deal really could be a solution to those voters that were maybe wavering or maybe did make a different choice. Like I, I really do see if if it is informal and, and in the, the terms that we think it possibly could be that one time voter that voted liberal for years and years and gave the NDP a chance. If this is public enough, I feel like they could switch back to uh, liberal pretty easily because this addresses those outward concerns. So I guess my biggest question is, what is the advantage for the NDP? Is it just about seeing like you're valuable or is there like, I, I just don't see it, man. Like, wh what do they get out of this? Well, I mean, the NDP could get policy, right? Hypothetically, they do could we get believe policies. that, though? Do we believe that'll well, happen? Well, there, it depends, right? I'm skeptical, of course. Yeah. But that's what you're, we're talking about. Like, what are the potential upsides? They get policies passed and they get to claim ownership, at least in part, of those policies. Uh, if the NDP is worried about a looming election, although I'm not necessarily sure they are, the finances are better recently than they have been in many years. The reality is that fundamentally, 
um, you want to have some role in government. And if this gives you the ability to fundraise and wait a couple years until another election, this is good as well. It also might help you with winning over some of those liberal voters because, again, uh, those those voters who like you um, are the ones you sort of need to convince, mm-hmm. right? And maybe working guess, with Trudeau will help yeah. with that. In general, although not always, it, the, 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 the discourse, the, the, the cliche is it's not good to be the junior partner in a minority government mm. that often you get punished or, or, or the, or the, the larger party gets rewarded. For instance, a lot of people thought that that 2017, um, green NDP coalition, soft coalition deal worked out well. And mm. you'd say that in a just world, both parties would have been rewarded, but effectively what happened was the Greens sort of stagnated and the uh, the BCNDP won a big majority government, mostly at the Liberals' expense, but it totally shut the Greens out of power. Similarly, there was a lot of good cooperation between Pierre Trudeau and David Lewis in the... Um, in the 1970s, but the result of that was the NDP uh, losing seats and losing their balance of power as Trudeau returned a majority two years later. Uh, even in uh, international examples, there was the, the Liberal Democrats, uh, the, the kind of center-center-right party in Britain, formed mm. a coalition to take Labour out of power in the late teens, or the late 2000s, early 2010s. Uh, and as part of that minority coalition, for a bunch of reasons, they ended up getting crushed in a subsequent election as the conservatives won a majority. Then again, um, Bob Ray did a, a formed a deal to help take out a, a conservative government in Ontario that had been in power for a long time. And coming out of that where the liberals sort of had a minority, Bob Ray was able to win a majority coming out as the junior partner of a coalition. So there are real risks for the smaller party, mm-hmm. right? It makes it difficult to criticize the government. Uh, it makes it harder to differentiate yourself. You could end up in a situation where the liberals implement part of your policy uh, such that it, uh, that it looks like they're doing what yeah. <laughs> uh, you would do without actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard in some of those cases. We saw to that during COVID, vote, right? Yeah. With the, yeah, exactly. like, yeah. we needed the NDP here or else Canada wouldn't be in the state that it is now. And people would have absolutely had untold horrors put upon them because we just wouldn't get that cash. And some people didn't. It obviously wasn't perfect. But for a long time, remember those first few weeks when we were, the government was talking about what they were going to do during this pandemic. I don't want to see that version of like climate change and, and and climate action policy and have to hear like my concern is that if this does happen and the uh, the liberals do follow up on policy, it would be, you know, neoliberal fied, unfortunately. And then we have Jagmeet kind of hurting his messaging a bit, because like you said, he can't come out there and say, this is horrible. This is horrendous. This spits in the face of all Canadians because he is a partner in this. But that upside that you were mentioning that he could be seen as the real progressive voice that's part of this government that still pushes it. I do think I I see it now a little more clearly than I did before, that maybe he can get something that's good and better than nothing 
like we did have with the uh, dealing with COVID and, and trying to have that the, the income that everyone got each month. It was absolutely not perfect, but it was better than nothing. And perhaps he can come out smelling fresh and clean like this is, you know, the elder statesman. And at that point, I imagine Trudeau next election time, he's got to be on his last legs at that point. So maybe yeah. there's that. that. That that I can see a little more clearly just because at first looking through this, I really thought this would just wash away all of the concerns, real concerns that, that voters have about the Liberal Party, at least publicly facing, you know, like they, they need to feel more confident again to just vote for a party that doesn't really care about people. And I'm worried. I was worried, at least that the uh, the NDP could be, you know, that face wash. But I, I, I am seeing it a little clearly. If you had to bet, yeah, a couple things. So what I think is that you know, if we listen to that clip of Jugmeet Singh, uh, you know, he is uh, willing to find ways to work. There's not going to be a formal coalition, but maybe that doesn't preclude some kind of deal. There is no discussion at all of a coalition, and that is a firm no for me. There's no, there's not going to be any coalition at all. Uh, but I am prepared to find ways to to work together, and I've made that clear. Uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, I want to work to to deliver more help to people. I want to make sure this parliament works for people. And I want to respect the decision that Canadians have made in this election. They sent us here to work for them. They expect us to work for them. And that means, in my mind, to make sure parliament actually works to deliver what people need. And so when it comes to helping people, I'm ready to work together. If it comes to hurting people or making a decision that's going to make life difficult for people, the Liberals can't count on my support. And we've laid out some of the key priorities. You know, we want to see action on fighting the climate crisis and we want to see action on on making life more affordable. The Conservatives are running hard on the idea of a coalition. But what I do think is interesting is they asked Canadians, if you have two NDP campaign promises, you want to see which ones do you want implemented, right? Mm. And so these are not uh, levels of support, just to be clear. These are top two choices. This was Angus Reid who did the poll. Uh, they said, um, which two promises would you like to see implemented most? And for total amounts among Canadians, it was one, a price cap on cell phone bills and internet bills, mm. uh, and two, a national de dental care system. That includes conservative voters as well. But when you just look at, say, liberal voters, because those are the people that have to be a won over to the coalition, the two top, top choices were national dental care and universal pharmacare. Uh, you know, mm. those were the those were the the biggest ones, but significant support for a wealth tax among liberal voters, as well as the the um, cell phone and Internet bills. So, I mean, I think that Singh, if he plays this right, which is to say, look, we're not doing a formal coalition, but we're looking to find ways to work for this with this government. We want to make it work for Canadians. And we know that liberal voters and Canadians in general support pharmacare, dental care, a wealth tax. And, you know, um, uh, pr consumer protection issues like mm. cell phone bills, um, that is something that we are willing to look at. And, and so there's a lot of policies that the Canadians, uh, that the, these, that the NDP could get broad support in a coalition. But coalition, I don't think is happening. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, th I think Singh is clear. right. Uh, <laughs> Singh is right to not, to not take a formal coalition. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do worry, though, again, depending on what we see, if we do, he does get that push of, of what Canadians want. We're not going to see 
nationalized telecoms. Like that won't be no. the actual answer. Which, well, I mean, as, look, Singh didn't run on that, right? Like, yeah, look, look, he should have. He it was a fucking party policy. Yeah, look, we yeah, yeah. Had a big this fight on it. At uh, I wrote an article for uh, Passage earlier this year where I was like, "Where the hell is the nationalized the telecoms policy?" And then we had it at convention. And it got passed. I know Matthew Green and others did work on that. And it passed, I think, quite heavily, either unanimously or quasi-unanimously. And then Singh was like, yeah, I guess we'll just run back the save you 10 bucks a month and your cell phone mm-hmm. bill policy. Truly a, a, a shitty move, if I'm being honest. So if the NDP is not going to run on nationalized telecoms, it's no surprise that the, the horizon of people's views on that is, you know, uh, loose yeah. price control. Right? It's limited by what he's yeah. actually saying, unfortunately. But so. I think if the NDP, if they made, if they look, if they, as you know, one one thing is that a couple things here. One, the liberals have all the, bar, mo, not all, most of the bargaining chips They're in, in the this power situation. Position. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but, but you were right in saying that uh, the NDP's demands are too amorphous. They're too broad. Mm-hmm. Uh, effectively, what you're demanding is what you would do if you had a majority government, which, which you don't. And so you have to actually pick a few issues. And I think if the NDP was to say, look, we want three or four things. We want the universal pharmacare plan, which supposedly the liberals are working to implement anyway. So it's not like, you know, you you guys aren't opposed. We want the dental care plan that we've been talking about, which isn't universal, but it's something you can immediately implement. And it's actually quite cheap and it'll give about 6 million people dental care coverage. So it's a, a, a national dental care program. We want that implemented. We want the 1% wealth tax to help in part pay for the things. And we want um, uh, you to stop suing indigenous kids. Like yeah. if you, there's those four things you could say. And, and like that would be, I think, I think seen as reasonable for demands uh, that reasonable. are all that very, are all popular mm-hmm. uh, with Canadians in general, but specifically with the people that vote either liberal or NDP. Because when you're talking about a coalition, it's like that's the parameter, right? And that's yeah. a, and that's a majority of Canadians. When you add up liberal plus NDP voters, that's effectively a majority of Canadians. Are very very close. I think they would throw maybe two or three of those quite reasonable and even modest requests. As we've said, there needs to be even bigger change. And I I, I think the, the needle here that's really interesting to thread is that if this agreement goes on, both sides kind of need to show as if bo- the either their partner is ineffectual and this is all yeah. them anyway. So it's it's an interesting step, yeah. but, you know, likelihood of this informally, because as we found out, Jagmeet said it's not going to happen. What do you think the likelihood of this informal connection and this propping up? Do you think that this could happen in the next few months? We talked about the upsides. Let's uh, let's put our money on the table here. What do you think, Christo? I, I don't think it's going to happen. No? I think this is actually going to be similar to the last parliament in a lot of ways. I think that, you know, the liberals, again, were in a, the exact same broad situation, which is that the NDP, I think you still need all three opposition parties to uh, unite. You still mm-hmm. have that situation, I believe, if I just do the quick math here. That mean that gives the liberals a lot of leeway, right? Again, the liberals the liberals expanded their lead on the conservatives, right? The like the liberals have about 160 seats, give or take. Uh if you add up the 
other three opposition, if you add up the, the two other larger parties, because the, the bloc has more seats, the bloc plus the conservatives uh, do not even equal, uh, they equal about 151. Yeah. So, so yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think what the liberals are going to do more or less is run the government like they did last time, which is to say, uh, govern as if you have a majority in terms of like day-to-day functioning. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, keep in your mind that any individual policy you pass has to be palatable to one of the three parties. So whether the Bloc or Conservatives or NDP likes a given policy, that's all you need. And you don't need a long-running formalized deal. Um, I'm skeptical that a, that a coalition or even like a supply and confidence deal is going to happen. Because again, usually in Canadian history, those things happen when the first place party... Um, is 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 very close to the second place party yeah. and really needs that buffer, uh, and that's just not the case right now, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. we don't even know what's happening with the conservatives. Are they gonna Are they gonna torch O'Toole? I think mm-hmm. that would actually be a we, well, we could talk about that in another episode, but I think that would actually be a really bad idea. I think Aaron O'Toole could win. I think I think he could win, but like if they torch him, then the conservatives aren't going to want another election for at least a year, year and a half. Uh, you know they're not going to want to pull the government down uh, while they're still selecting a new leader. Uh, and so um, I don't think the liberals are in any are in any desire to formally tie themselves down mm-hmm. at this stage. I, I can see that the future clearly now, Krista, you've given me the abilities now to, to see what will happen. We get a farmer care plan that is pretty much a spit in the face for what people actually need. But the NDP criticize it, say that it's wrong, say that we need more, but still reluctantly as a major- majority of them, at least vote for it. And that is what we have. And then Trudeau come election time gets to say, you know, he did this to, this is what I did to help all Canadians. It's the best upside for him and whatever, you know, uh, consulting firm he wants to end up in for the last 20 years of his life so that he isn't just like thrown out of polite society, whatever those ambitions are. But yeah, I, I, I can see it as clearly as I see your face right now, Christo. So <laughs> I, I don't know, man. It's I always get upset when I have to enter the mind of politicians who are trying to actively politic, you know, like when that's actively happening and go into their shoes for a second, it just, you know, I feel like I have to have a shower sometimes after we have episodes like let's talk about rich millennials. Let's go back to that. (laughs) Where is that? Anyways, uh, we got a little more time now. Uh, Do you want to talk about the Canadian military cuddling up with some Ukrainian Nazis. Does that sound like a little interesting little amuse-bouche here at the end? Or are there dessert not an amuse-bouche? So (laughs) anyways, this this happened back in uh, 2018. Of course, as you may or may not know, the Canadian military has uh, offenses and is, is operating within Ukraine. And some Canadian military officials met with one of the battalions there, the Azov 
Azov Battalion in June of 2018, and it was made very clear almost immediately that this is a Nazi battalion. They believe in the same Nazi ideals. Ukraine has a history of white supremacy that runs deep in, in many and different... And anti-Semitism. Yeah. And look, like, not spe- not just the... U- like, but like... Yeah, in, I was getting to it. Eastern Europe <laughs> and, and in a lot of... Including Canada, you know, there's a sure. broad history of anti-Semitism. And during uh, World War II, there were some Ukrainians that... Uh, were more comfortable with Hitler than they were either <laughs> Stalin or even the Allies. Yeah. Um, and they made alliances sometimes out of sur- a desire to survive, but sometimes out of a shared hatred of Jews or Roma peoples or or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. And, and some of those people include a certain finance minister's uh, grandfather. Uh, oh. And so, um, yeah. We got there. And, we got there, folks. <laughs> yeah. And so... Uh, who always bristles at the fact that uh, her grandfather's uh, Nazi collaborationist past is brought up. It's not her fault. She doesn't own the sins of her grandfather, but she should acknowledge them. And so Canada, for a variety of reasons, out of this just general sense that, you know, uh, Russia is the enemy. And I'm not I'm not pro Putin, of course. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Russia is not a left-wing society I'm going to defend, but, you know, uh, Russia being sort of as as the geopolitical enemy and yeah. Ukraine being seen as a buffer against Russia, uh, Canada has a big role there. Of course, also, uh, Canada has a large Ukrainian-Canadian population, and so they still form a sort of formidable voting mm-hmm. bloc, but a lot of this has raised uncomfortable issues because in some Ukrainian sections of the Ukrainian Canadian community, there's an open admiration for some of these quote unquote national heroes who more or less were fascists or Nazis or anti members of the SS in some cases, members of the SS. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so Canada has been funding uh, Nazi groups or right wing groups. Right. And in some cases they've been trying to hide it. And it's sort of come out, right? Yeah, this is the interesting thing that it was discovered that once the these forces that were working directly, sharing resources, you know, the military is in their role as a lot to do. The Canadian military has a lot to do with trying to train and and bolster the forces that are already there. And and one of those battalions was this one that is they knew it was racist, they knew it was a Nazi organization. They had info on it from years past and the big mistake that they made was they decided to take pictures with this group and then those pictures were used as propaganda for the battalion showing that the Canadian military forces actually support them. Now, of course, the military was aware of this. The concern wasn't let's go out, let's get ahead of this story, make sure everyone knows, you know, we Canada isn't like this, we don't support it. But instead, uh, a lot of really great journalists were able to discover that most of the efforts were put towards how do we hush these? How, how do we make it so other people don't find out? What's, what's the best crisis response uh, to making sure nobody sees this. And that turn in and of itself really makes me feel like the, 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 uh, <laughs> the upper, what is the term again for the professional class that are subsuming every other part of our society and, and Im- implying no morality whatsoever, but are doing it with a bureaucratic lens. What is that called again, Crystal? You know what I'm talking about? 
no, silence. All right, I'll, I'll figure it out soon. But it just it just sickens me that that of course is the response that that it is a a more bureaucratic one that that is about making sure people don't know that Canadians did yeah. this, not well, that he, maybe they shouldn't do this. Well, yeah, well, exactly. The the Ottawa citizen, the the literal headline here says Canadian officials who met with Ukrainian unit linked to neo Nazis, the Azov Battalion feared exposure by news media so like they knew what they were doing was at at either wrong and it is or at the very least would be seen as uh you know politically unpalatable right and so canadian it's a, they were they were they were really concerned because they knew that this group was seen as part of this movement Canada is trying to build as a buffer against Russia, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, in effect, they are uniting with Nazis. Canadians yeah. met with and were briefed by leaders from the Azov Battalion in June 2018. The officers and diplomats did not object to the meeting and instead allowed themselves to be photographed with battalion officials, despite previous warnings that the unit saw itself as pro-Nazi. Yeah. The Azov Battalion then used those photos for its online propaganda pointing that the uh, Canadian delegation had expressed hopes for further fruitful cooperation because Canada is ashamed of this but this is very very good for the Azov battalion oh yeah and they've bragged about the fact that Canada has helped them in their training and has provided them with resources in many cases because Canada is seen as a as a you know an important country as a trustworthy country as a respectable country uh, those things aren't necessarily true, but the mm -hmm. world does see Canada generally pretty positively. And so for these these uh, these uh, Nazi aligned groups to have the uh, at least implicit backing, if not explicit backing of the Canadian government is a huge propaganda coup for them because simultaneously it shows them as being powerful and meaningful, but. Um, also shows them as not necessarily being that bad because if they were that bad, why would the Canadian government be be working with them? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, this is this is um this is a big deal, right? And this coverage has been blowing up. Another piece by the same author in in the Ottawa Citizen, really one of the few sources that's been covering this issue. They've actually done a really good job. Uh, the, the, this is there there's uh, reviews that are happening about this because this is something that. Uh, the government didn't want to come out that they were knowing was that they knew what was happening. Um, this is something that uh, Jewish Canadians have been speaking out against. And there's a real reckoning. Yeah. There's a real reckoning that we haven't had with the fact that Canada for a variety of reasons uh, have uh, formed uh, at least a kind of, you know, uh, tactical alliance with, with Nazi aligned groups in, in parts of Eastern Europe. Um, and uh, those things are in part rooted in Canadian history. Mm hmm. Per, uh, professional managerial class is what I was thinking. So okay, PMC yes. stuff. There we go. Yeah. All right, folks, we'll we'll end it there. Thanks again. Uh, if you want to chat with us, please join patreon.com slash left turn Canada a buck a month, 10 bucks for the year and head over to discord. And uh, yeah, some great growing community there. Get to talk with a lot of Canadians. Have your questions read on air if there's anything you want us to discuss we're going to be diving into that soon and uh, yeah next week i will not be in the hospital knock on all the wood around me this is going to be an early week podcast that's as as precise as i'm willing to go christo at this point early week <laughs> does that work for you early week yeah yes it does yes, early it does. week all right see y'all later